Today's Dead Idea, this is the grand finale episode of our series on Russian serfdom, and boy have we got something special for you today. Now for these finales, we always do a mashup between a historical tale and pop culture cinema, and today's historical tale is the autobiography of a clever and ballsy runaway serf named Nikolai Shipov, who escapes the clutches of a vast empire, the Russian Empire. So this is going to be George Lucas's Surf Wars. <laughs> and... Oh man. Oh Brandon, you didn't warn me about the title. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. And that voice to help us really bring this home is our very special guest today. Daniel Doughty of the Lesser Bonaparte's original lineup. So this is going to be awesome. That's what we're talking about cool. today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife whose first words to me upon rescuing her from the clutches of the Empire were, aren't you a little short for a podcaster? <laughs> <laughs> With me today is a very special guest co-host, Daniel Dotti, or as I like to think of him, the David Lee Roth of the Lesser Bonaparte's lineup. <laughs> that is me. beyond flattering, yes. <laughs> And, uh, and and hello all, and thank you, thank you for having me, Brandon. This is uh, this should be a, this sh I'm looking forward to this. This should be a lot of fun. And I would I would stress to everyone at home, Brandon specifically told me not to do any research or prepare, so I don't have to pretend like I have, like I would usually do, uh, recording lesser Bonaparte's. But <laughs> yes, yes. So, so listener, you and I together, we'll see if we can catch Daniel with his pants down this episode or something. <laughs> I'm halfway there, man. Halfway there. Uh, okay, so Daniel will be adding his trademark perspicacity and canny <laughs> observations to the show today. So please, Daniel, interrupt me at any point to observe cannily and perspicaciously, okay? <laughs> you got it, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's get to our story. <laughs> I'm, I'm raring to go, dude. All right. <laughs> today we have the exciting tale of a real-life 19th century runaway surf named Nikolai Shipov, which comes from his own autobiography, which is just blows me away. It's freaking amazing that we have anything from serfs at all. And then we have this amazing yeah. like adventure story from his own hand. That was going to be one of my first questions, actually, Brandon. Do we do we have very many firsthand accounts from from serfs or well here's is, the thing how unique is this source? Here's the thing in Russia, as opposed to everywhere else in the world. Serfdom stuck around till the mid 19th century. Yeah. And so that was, you know, well within fairly widespread literacy. Still, most serfs probably were not literate or not very literate, but you get the occasional one enough that you actually have a fair number. And uh, episode four of this series, we heard quite a few stories all written by serfs themselves, okay, in cool. including a long poem written in verse, which was terrible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, cool. Now, about Shipoff, our protagonist here. Daniel, I gotta say that this guy is one wily and ballsy dude. <laughs> uh, that's exactly my kind of guy. It's a, a, a wily and ballsy dude from the bottom dregs of society is exactly who I want to hear from. 
Like that's yeah. Right. There's a lot of Han Solo in this guy, I have to say. Yeah. Although it takes a little while for it to show. You you can see it blossom throughout the stories. <laughs> yeah. He starts off a little bit more like a Luke Skywalker, stuck as a serf on the estate of Vyazdnyaya, which is just east of Moscow. Kind of like Luke, you know, stuck on Tatooine, you know, the bright center of the galaxy or on the planet farthest from kind of a situation, right? Yeah. That's what it feels like for Shipoff to be a serf stuck on this estate, right? He's longing for something greater. He just he feels it in his bones, right? But pretty soon, his true colors start to show, and he, this turn will turn very much into a more of a Han Solo story with the wiliness <laughs> and the cockiness and the <laughs> everything else coming out. Yeah, he is a merchant trader by profession, which is a link to Han Solo, of course. But moreover, he's got all the charm and confidence of Han Solo too. So. Um, in fact, he's so cocky and self-assured that at one point he intentionally gets himself captured by bandits. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we got to look and look forward to today. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, he is hunted, right? Um, he's stalked by a surf hunter named Pavlov, who is the villain of our tale. So he's going to be the kind of like Darth Vader-y type dude. Trying yeah. to track down these those damn droids, except in this case, it's you know it's a surf. <laughs> but <Right. laughs> but to be fair, surfs were basically like droids to their noble landlords. So well, yeah, I mean that was I was gonna say like they they would have been like just purely and and again kind of that always bugged me about Star Wars is that you had these clearly very sophisticated intelligent beings that were always treated as just tools. And uh, even though you could have conversations with them and they clearly had emotions, but yeah, so that's actually, that's a marvelous way of thinking of it, uh, that the serfs were in that, because you couldn't, you know, they're humans, so you couldn't, you know, speak with one and not recognize their common humanity, but it was still just like, and you're also an instrument toward, you know, furthering my wealth, so get to it, you know? Well, they were, they were kind of humans. <laughs> I think yeah. at one point they... <laughs> I think at one point, um, the Russian aristocrats thought they were different enough that they had different colored bones, um, which wow. is an interesting thing, because you would think <laughs> yeah. that that would be a very easily you know, thing to easily um, disprove <laughs> by digging up any surf bones, but you know how those things go. So <laughs> right. anyway, yeah, so surfs, droids, whatever, take your pick. Um, also, <laughs> depending on your level of Star Wars nerd cred, um, since this Pavlov guy is a surf hunter. You might want to think of him more as Boba Fett, just to be a little more within the Star Wars canon. That's up I'm, to you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, Brandon, because my thought was like, actually, this is rather like an Empire Strikes Back, where Darth Vader hires several bounty hunters to track down Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon. But so, you okay, I'm, you can't yeah, have I'm a Star I'm... Wars story without a Vader, so. <laughs> right. Okay, and one last thing I want to say today, thank you to David and Henry Dutton of 8-Bit Cinema, who has contributed the soundtrack today. Um, they have these hilarious YouTube videos where they recreate pop culture movies as if they were 8-bit video games. <laughs> oh, cool. You could, today you'll be imagining this surf Nikolai Shipoff basically as this blocky 8-bit graphics guy <laughs> kind of side-scrolling his way away from this Vader Boba Fett surf hunter dude <laughs> who's probably like chucking beets and forced cabbages and stuff at him. <laughs> right. I was gonna say I was gonna start thinking like it's like a bonus mushroom or something. Well, uh, well, mushroom hunting was actually a very popular pastime in Russia. So that's really spot on. Again, <laughs> there you go. 
Okay, we'll be looking for that star all the way through the game, and then he can just <laughs> he can just blast his way to freedom. <laughs> okay, enough, enough already. All right, shall we begin? Let's go. Okay. A long time ago, on a surf commune far, far away. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> that that's that rules. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course we yeah. get the opening crawl text. It is a dark time for the peasantry. Serfdom, codified into law in sixteen forty nine, forces serfs to pay heavy dues, perform forced labor or both for their estate landlords who own them like slaves. Now it is eighteen thirty three. Serf Nikolai Shipoff has dared to defy his landlord and the empire. Pursued by surf hunter agents, Shipoff strives to escape capture and find a means somehow to obtain freedom. And now we jump right into the action. I'm going to take some cinematic liberties and do a <laughs> flash forward scene of what is to come in Shipoff's story. Yeah. So now we go to February. 1833, the town of Yash, which is in modern Romania, but at the time, it's in Moldavia. We see a dark hayloft, with a mostly shadowed ship-off hiding, desperately keeping silent, peering out through a small crack in the wall. Through the crack, we see the farmyard just outside. The crunch of footsteps on snow is heard, and the sound of heavy breathing. Into the farmyard trudges a grim-looking traveler. A massive fur hat pulled tight like a helmet obscures his face. His eyes are lost within the shadows of the hat. Protruding from the hat are only clumps of dark beard hair with a single white icicle hanging from his nose. (laughs) Wrapped about him is a thick, dark coat frosted over with frozen sweat. He has the look of a peasant, but the bearing of a man on a mission. He unbuttons one ear flap of the fur hat and brushes away stringy, unwashed hair from his ear, listening. Inside the hayloft, Shipoff holds his breath. Then a creak comes from a hut on the farm as its door swings open. Out comes a silver-bearded old farmer in a hooded cloak to meet the traveler. But before the farmer can even say hello, the traveler barks, Where is Kislov? Kislov is the alias that Shipev has been using in Yash, by the way. Uh And also, by the way, all the dialogue that we are going to use today comes straight from Shipov's autobiography. I have to fill in a lot of the sensory description, what people look like in things, like the massive fur hat, for example. (laughs) But all the dialogue today is direct. That's marvelous, yeah. Okay, so... Where's Kislov, and where's he hiding? Barks the traveler. The old man answers, He left for Tsargrad, which is the Russian name for Constantinople. His quarters are here. I've got the key to his room. He left his property with me for a deposit of 4,000 rubles. 
which by the way is a shit ton of rubles <laughs> <laughs> i was i was gonna say like this is sort of before the uh the mass inflation of the 20th century afflicted all of the uh, currencies around the world so that would have been a fuckload of money <laughs> yeah so a typical surf salary in the early 19th century might be no more than like 20 to 40 rubles a year yikes yeah and but of course uh, there were you know all gradations of social classes this guy's a merchant so he's considerably more well off than your average surf although still you know a surf yeah and i and i guess i i was, I was mean to ask too would he i guess he would have by necessity of his role have had more sort of flexibility and autonomy I guess as a as a surf, would that have made? Was he like a traveling merchant, or was he more? I, I guess what kind of range of motion would it be? Because I know a lot of surfs like they were quite literally legally tied to like certain areas, you know, like the the, the estates, and they could not leave. But if he's like a trader, yeah, no, good question. So he, um, so surfs are legally tied to the estate that they're born on. You're right, yeah. unless they are um, bought and sold, in which case they could be transferred from estate to estate. Uh, he is the same. He must obtain uh, special passports to do any of his traveling. But it seems like he kind of gets it kind of easily, whereas your average surf would probably have much more of a difficult time, you know, okay. probably because of his traitoriness. Right, right. Okay, cool. Okay. So so the old man just, just said, like, he left for Sargrad and left me all these rubles as deposit, right? Okay. Yeah. The traveler barks, I saw Kislov myself today. He must be here. And the old man chides, well, if you saw him, why didn't you seize him? Take him to the consulate. But the traveler is in no mood for laughter. Where's Kislov's wife? Now the elderly farmer's expression grows hard. How should I know? Ask her husband. The traveler lets out a hmph. He scans the yard, sniffs the air. Then he turns on his heels and trudges off with marked dissatisfaction. Inside the hayloft, Shipoff breathes a sigh of relief. He has escaped for now. The screen fades to black. <laughs> the next scene is three years earlier, 1830, in Russia. Shipov is in his late 20s at this point and not yet embarked on his great adventure of defiance. Uh, he's still a serf on the estate of Yeznaya at this point, east of Moscow. In this scene, Shipov is traveling along the road in a coach wagon when it comes to a fork in the road. <laughs> Shipoff writes, Here I ordered the coachman to stop. My heart beat violently, and I could not decide. Should I turn right back to my parents' home or left to who knows where? And you could just you could see the gears turning in his head as he contemplates yeah. this, right? So the right path leads back home to the bondage of serfdom and everything else. The left path potentially to freedom. He could run away, disappear somewhere, and thereby escape the bonds in which he has been shackled since birth. So here's the moment of truth, and his lips are almost wet with anticipation. Now, although Shipoff doesn't tell us what he's thinking at this point in the narrative, you have to imagine that he's got to be, like, you know, adding up all the reasons that he has to make a break for it. So yeah. at this point, I'm going to take the opportunity to give a little bit of the backstory so that we can speed on to the action, okay? Yeah. So first and foremost, we've already talked about this a little bit, He's a serf, right? And as a merchant trader, he's a little more well-off than other serfs, a little more able to travel, but he's a serf nonetheless, able to be bought and sold at whim by his landlord, who is a certain Baron Saltykov. 
which, by the way, is the best name ever. <laughs> it's certainly, uh, certainly evocative, that's, yes, that's for sure. Baron Saltykov, who's almost always off in St. Petersburg or Moscow and almost never visits the estate. And this Baron Saltykov is the, basically the typical, you know, almost fairy tale like villain. He frees a serf once yeah. who becomes successful. And seeing that, he then vows never to free another serf again. <laughs> so, oh, man. So he's that kind of villain. Yeah. Um, what's more, uh, the Shipoffs also have a personal nemesis in addition to this Saltykov guy. Um, Nikolai Shipoff's father had been made bailiff, which is a kind of bureaucratic manager of some kind on the, the estate. And uh, the assistant bailiff ha has it in for them, basically, just from the very start. Ostensibly out of malice and envy, or so we're told by Shipoff. Um, the assistant bailiff's name is Tarkov. So <laughs> I, I'm going to think of him as like a CGI Peter Cushing. <laughs> like a, yes. a Mar Moff Tarkov. <laughs> I mean, it's too close not to use. I, I say go with it. <laughs> yeah. um, so this assistant bailiff Tarkov is always pulling shenanigans to hurt their business and ruin their name. Okay, so long story short, basically running away and leaving it all behind is looking pretty attractive to Shipoff by this point. But at long last, Shipoff remembers his father, who had fallen ill of late. He remembers his father at their last parting, repeating over and over, Come back soon, come back soon. And at this point, Chipoff has a change of heart. And he writes, If I don't return home, I thought, and if they hear nothing from me, father will immediately send someone to look for me in Uralsk. They won't find me there, of course, and will inform him that I'm missing, and he won't withstand such a blow. And with his condition, he'll die. And then I could regard myself as his murderer. Hmm. So Shipoff has this kind of young Luke moment where he's like, I can't, I've got responsibilities, and it's all so far away. <laughs> right. you know? He wanted to pick up some power converters at the Tashi exactly. station, but exactly. alas. <laughs> <laughs> alas. Yeah, it's the classic Joseph Campbell hero journey moment where the hero <laughs> refuses the call. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So with a heavy heart, Shipoff tells the driver, eh, take the path to the right, go back home. And when he gets back home, he finds his father lying in bed, Suffering from, Daniel, your favorite illness. Oh, Lord, no. Yes. Oh, yes. He got the dropsy. He got the dropsy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Which... po podcasting note for listeners at home. Don't do a Google image search for dropsy. <laughs> you'll you'll regret it. It's, it's the death of joy. Please don't. Actually, <laughs> if you do, if you do now, lately, I don't know if you've Googled it lately, Daniel, but <laughs> I haven't. I learned my lesson, but please. <laughs> it's even worse now because there's this bizarre point and click adventure starring a clown named Dropsy. <laughs> oh God. It's really Oh, that's just it's really creepy. Wow. Okay. Oh boy. Anyway, yes. <laughs> Back to the story. <laughs> anyway, at, at first it looks like his father is going to recover from his dropsy, but then still more antics incited by this Tarkov drive him to despair, and after nine days, he gives up the ghost and is no more. And Chipoff takes this hard, but at the same time, now it's like this Luke Skywalker moment kind of staring at the burned down remains of his family's moisture farm and there's nothing yeah. holding him back from going on this adventure anymore so after giving his father a lavish funeral his mind turns once again toward escape so 
So Shipoff is plotting now. He starts talking to people on the DL. He finds out like who's escaped and how they've done it. And he hatches this multi-staged plan involving a series of phony passports and aliases. His seven-year-old daughter, he leaves in the care of his mother-in-law, while his wife is to flee along with him. And by the way, this kind of sticks in my craw a little bit, but you just get yeah. this um, from a 19th century kind of work. We never get any line, any words from the wife. We never get any action on her own like volition. We don't even get a physical description of her. Not even, hmm. we don't even find out her name. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah, so, so you have to kind of imagine, you know, like in any modern, like, historical period drama, you've got all these scenes of the female lead just kind of silently looking on and the action with this, like, concerned emotional expression as if they have yeah. something to do. You have to imagine that. <laughs> here wow. for, yeah. Yeah, so, but, hmm. you know. That's that's what it was like in 19th century Russia. It was very much like patriarchy. <laughs> very true. I guess, Brandon, one question I have for you. So you mentioned that uh, Shipoff was sort of asking around about successful escapes mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I guess there was this kind of information network, almost like was was there anything sort of like the, the kind of, I guess in the United States, of course, there's the famous sort of informal network of uh, the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad. Escape from bondage. Was there some? I guess there was there something similar for serfs in Russia, or was it even sort of less, more, e even even more diaphanous than just the the very very loosely organized underground railroad? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Because of course it's a tale <laughs> about, a, about runaways today. I don't think that they had anything analogous to an underground railroad because they really mm -hmm. didn't need it. Uh, one of the thing, okay. one of the things we got into in a previous episode is that it wasn't that hard to run away. Because Russia was such a wide open place with yeah. such a sparse population that whole villages would run away all at once. And you would think like carts and carts and wagons and wagons moving along the road would tip somebody off. But apparently they pulled it off. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the situation Fantastic. was, was yeah. pretty different from the Underground Railroad. Um, okay. It's really more of a matter of, of staying runaway, um, right, not right. getting hunted down. Is, like it's easy it's easy deal. to get to get away at first but yeah. right right it's like how well how then do you survive exactly without sort of being found out again yeah, yeah and and establishing new social ties and everything else that goes along with you know that sort of thing yeah okay so finally Shipoff sets the wheels in motion of his plan he and his wife load up into a carriage saying goodbye to most of their worldly possessions which are sure to be confiscated by tarkov the moment anyone notices that they're missing but no matter freedom at all costs right Okay, so Shipoff writes, On the night of January 1st, 1832, my wife and I left by post-chase. So with the help of a brother-in-law, they obtain phony passports under the aliases of Grigory and Elizaveta Kislov. Then they head to the border town of Brikani, near the Moldavian border, where they must await further phony passports. And now, this border town, to hear Shipoff describe it, is apparently a wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> Marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> but not because it's full of, like, you know, smugglers and scoundrels and card players and things. It's rather for a very 19th century reason. And Shipoff writes, The next day, I hired a Yid. And Daniel, do you know what a Yid is? Uh, I, w I would presume... Well, no, I'm not going to presume. What is what is that? <laughs> uh, apparently, it's an anti-Semitic term for a Jew that was popular at okay. the time. 
Yeah. I was yeah, I was about to say like, well, yep. considering that it does sound like Yiddish, then that must be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he says the next day I hired a Yid to take us to Brikani. Uh the sleigh trail had already disappeared, but it was impossible to travel on wheels. It was in short that time of year when roads are bad, and only with difficulty did we make it to Brikani. It turned out that there wasn't a single Russian in town. They were all Jews, and there was nothing to be done. We rented an apartment from a Jew. The room was most unappealing, with a heavy and peculiar smell. My wife had never seen such a nasty chamber, and it disgusted her. Okay, all <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, so that's your 19th century habit of Right, I was going to say, we can't, we can't really expect mid-19th century yeah. Russian to... Uh... Yeah. To, to get beyond his his, his well, very deeply set anti-Semitic feelings. Well, well, actually, actually, there may be a glimmer of hope. It could be a ma- my imagination, but there are some mm-hmm. signs in the narrative that he might he might show some character growth. So okay, we can look forward to that. <laughs> so they live in Brikani for a week, which you have to imagine must have been extremely tense. You know, they're just like, have we been found out? Have any of these Jews turned us in? Will we be nabbed in the middle of the night? But Shipov's only actual remark about it is the sheer boredom. I mean, there's probably hmm. nothing to keep them their minds occupied from, from worrying, you know. So yeah. anyway, finally, their moment comes. They get their foreign passports and they leave the next day for the Moldavian border. And again, characteristically terse in his description. But here, too, you have to imagine the silence just being pregnant with meaning. You, you can hear the clip-clop of hooves, the bounce of the carriage as you crane your neck around, looking to see if you're being followed, the urge to tell the coachman to go faster but not too fast, hurry but don't look like you're hurrying, I don't know, drive casual. <laughs> uh, your nerves are on high alert for hours on end. <laughs> right. You scan the horizon for hints of border guards, listen for the sound of far-off galloping, but... Shipoff and his wife managed to cross the border without event. Then, interestingly, we get his first impressions of the foreign country of Moldavia. He says, We went up mountains and down valleys, and stopped in taverns where there was nothing but wine and vodka to be had. I neither knew the Moldavian language, nor could I understand their way of counting money. Hmm. And they stop at a coaching inn of a tavern owned by a Jew. We carried our things from the carts into the big room and put them in one corner. In that room were a lot of half-drunken yids and Moldavians, and they sold vodka and wine there. And of course, here's where I'm hearing the da 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 Yeah. Yeah. The Moldavian cantina. Exactly. The so Mold- I, I guess, and, I, and forgive me if I uh, if we're going to get to it later in the narrative. But sure. At this point, Moldavia was still a dependency of the Ottoman state, right? Ooh, this- yeah. You might be outstripping my expertise there. You might. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. All I know is it's not Russia at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I think at this point, it, it would have been kind of one of the semi-autonomous provinces uh, that ostensibly owed sort of the, the the turkish state was suzerain over it but this was this was also like given the you know the 1830s 1840s this was also the time of the burgeoning sort of nationalist movements okay so uh I, i'm 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 largely unclear on the timeline but given that it's before the crimean war this probably would have been like 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think at this point there would have been a very if there was any Turkish presence it would have been a very light touch. But uh, sorry, I was I was just sort of thinking to myself, like, oh, I wonder where this you know and in, in the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire, where have we been <laughs> at this point? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting because yeah, you, it's easy to forget that the Ottoman Empire like had their fingers all over Europe, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So later in this part of the story, he also comments on the gypsies and their strange music. So basically, the shipoffs are presented with this alien intercultural encounter, and they're clearly in culture shock at this point. Uh, he's always commenting on the bizarre habits of the Jews, the Moldavians, and the gypsies. But like I said, you know, there might be hints of character growth later, right? So yeah. speaking of which, so he's at this tavern, right? Full of these ethnic people, right? <laughs> 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 and uh, he leaves his wife there, and he goes to the bazaar to do what, he, what traders do. And there he meets some Russian expats, which he's very happy to see. Yeah. Um, and he starts talking to them, and he discovers that they are not just any kind of Russian, but old believers. Which, oh, okay. Do you know the old believers? I, I, I know of them, but I, okay. I, I don't know very, mu very much detail about it. Yeah, but, so we, uh, yeah. we went into this a little bit in one of the previous episodes. Um, they are very much feared outsiders from back home in Russia who cling to the old ritual ways from before the liturgical reforms of the Nikonshina, which was way back in the 17th century, but there were still old believers around at this time. Um, notably, they would cross themselves not with three fingers, but with two, which, <laughs> I mean, may seem like a absolutely insignificant, you know, hair-splitting point to, to mm -hmm. bicker about, but... Just to put it in context, like if you imagine the difference between how Americans salute, you know, with your, you know, bent at the elbow and your hand to your forehead compared to saluting like arm outstretched, like the fascist right, right. salute and how much emotional vitriol you just immediately feel. I mean, that's probably right. what it was like to them, just, you know, just to make a comparison. So, yeah. So, yeah, small but huge differences. Anyway, the point yeah, is yeah. that, that, if he met these old believers back home, it would have been, oh, old believers. But now, <laughs> right. he's, now he's like, oh, thank God, Russians. <laughs> right, I can at least have a conversation right. you know, with, these, with these heretics. You yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he says that these Russians were long since citizens of Moldavia. Their fathers and grandfathers had come there from Russia during the time of Peter the Great. According to them, there were many Russians in Moldavia living in their own settlements involved in raising grain and gardens, and especially in trade. They lived there in freedom. They didn't have to pay many taxes and weren't conscripted into the army. The old believers asked me in their turn about Russia, and I told them that free people lived well in Russia, but that serf peasants had it very bad. Poverty, barsina, which is corvée labor, forced labor, and obrok, which was dues paid in kind to your landlord, had warned them all out. The old believers were very sorry to hear this. So already, I mean, he's having a little bit of a cultural expanding, right? Kind of getting this perspective. So a little bit yeah. of sympathy, a little bit of fellow feeling, these cultural outsiders. And he kind of finds himself, ever since he starts this journey, he himself becomes an outsider and keeps finding himself thrust into the arms of other outsiders, which is hmm. interesting. Yeah. 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 In any case... The Shipovs have made it out of Russia, but they are by no means safe, for soon begins the hunt. So 
So Shipoff gets a letter with some dread news. There is a bounty on his head. 1,000 rubles. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. That, that Doing the math again, that'd be about <laughs> yeah. 50 times the typical annual salary of a serf in this period. There are serf hunters after him, and one in particular by the name of Pavlev is about to become the bane of his existence. And we get no description of Pavlov from Shipoff in his autobiography, other than that he is a peasant from Piesnaya, which leaves me free to picture him as in our opening scene with a big furry Russian hat like a helmet obscuring his face yeah. <laughs> and a dark coat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this news of Pavlov coming for him spooks Shipoff, and he writes, I grew cautious. I changed my outfit, shaved my beard, cut my hair in the German fashion, and went out only in the evenings. And all mm. of that, again, might sound not so significant to us, but shaving the beard and cutting the hair for a Russian serf? Big yeah. fucking deal. Yeah. Um, one of the worst punishments that could be doled out to a serf, far worse than flogging, was to have your beard shaved. It was a mark of humiliation. You would, they would shave half of your head hair and half of your beard, and everybody yeah. could see that you, know, you, you were in trouble. Right, and it was, right, right. It clearly marks you out as you know having having made some sort of misstep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you would see Russian nobility with clean shaven faces at this time, but it was priests and serfs that never shaved their beards. Yeah, it was yeah. a mark of pride. But but he gives that up because freedom at all costs is a one track minded guy. So yeah, so he leaves his wife in the Moldavian city of Yash in the care of a man he knows named Dubrovin which is the old man from the opening scene that we have. Okay. Now, this Dubrovin is a Skopitz, which is the singular of Skopci, which is another group of religious dissenters. Again, outsiders, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and we didn't get to talk about this earlier in the series, but these Skopits believe in completely eradicating gender. Up Whoa. to... Okay. Yes, up to and including surgical removal of genitalia and breasts yeah wow this is this is this is marvelous i i well i mean that's you know not mar i this is an intense sort of blue system there but like <laughs> i i i myself am a a a, a connoisseur of of uh, religious dissent and, and heresies and whatnot and <laughs> right. i i've never heard of these particular people i'm definitely gonna have to dig into this more uh, that's, we, that's that's amazing yeah. i would like to do an episode on them as a dead idea because there's no more any more I believe there it's it's you know a died out cult at this point, but well, it's but yeah. a, it's a bit like the the Shakers in the yes, know, 19th no, exactly. century America, where like if you have a you have a religious community built around chastity, or in this case, the most extreme yeah. denial of of gender and procreation. Well, sadly, most religions are propagated through natural increase. Right. So exactly. Yeah. 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 So they went went the way of the Shakers. Yep. Yeah. So this Dubrovin is a Skopitz, and I'm just going to go ahead and cast Alec Guinness for him. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Shipov leaves his wife with Dubrovin, who is like, you must learn the ways of the Skopsi. <laughs> <laughs> but Shipov is like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> so for his own cover, Shipov goes to do what he does best, which is trade. And he buys a bunch of a kind of oil called Attar of Roses, which he plans to sell at a profit back in Russia. And now why he wants to go back to Russia, I don't know. It's like I said, he's <laughs> he just, he, he, Yeah, he, he can't deny that he uh, just, he's got to make that Kessel run, he need, you know? <laughs> yeah, he needs the credits. 
He's, yeah. he's, he's got Jabba breathing down his neck, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's where Shipoff uh, starts to move from a Luke to a Han Solo. And we get to see mm-hmm. just how cocky he can be. So first of all, like I said, he's going back to Ro- Russia just to make a few rubles. But secondly, he decides to hide the Attar of Roses from the officials, hoping to avoid paying customs on it. You know, like he doesn't want you to pay no. duties on his Toblerone, right? So, <laughs> so now <laughs> exactly. he's a smuggler too. And apparently he, he thinks he's a little bit of Luke still, though, like he can pull off this Jedi mind trick, like these aren't the oil jars you're looking for. But he totally fails. <laughs> <laughs> he's found out immediately, then has to fess up to trying to smuggle the oil across the border. And so now he's in hot water with the customs officials. But the real significance here is, of course, if these custom officials, like, if, if they, like, report his true name or something back to wherever, like... His surf hunter can find out where he is and track him down. So yeah. it's like, this is a major, major slip up here, right? Yeah. Fortunately, he is let go with little more than confiscation of the oil and a slap on the wrist. But he's got to be kicking himself. <laughs> <laughs> so for his next move, Shipoff was going to do some business in the big city of the area, which would be Odessa, modern Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. But now with Pavlov in the picture... And having learned his lesson with the Attar of Roses, he becomes more cautious and holds back. Instead, he gets in contact with an old friend named Kozhevnikov, who is also a runaway from Vyaznaya, the same estate, and is currently hiding out in Odessa. Yeah. And Shipov carries on a secret correspondence by letter with this Kozhevnikov, whom he pays to act as a sort of spy for him there. So he's, he's got his contacts, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I have to wonder how much that he can actually trust this Kozhevnikov, because if you're paying somebody for services, there's always somebody who can come along and pay more, you know? Right. So it's kind of like a, what if the Empire gets there first, kind of, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of a Lando in, in this story, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Or, a, or, yeah, like it's, it's you know, the, I, I'm always reminded of, uh, you know, Han stacking up his uh, his big stacks of credits. Yeah. At the end of A New Hope before the Death Star attack. And so like, hey, you know, I got right. my money. Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Right. So it, it's, he's got to be taking a risk communicating yeah. with this Kozhevnikov. So in any case, soon he gets word from Kozhevnikov in Odessa. And he writes, I received a letter from him saying that Pavlov had arrived there, intending immediately to find me or perhaps Kozhevnikov himself. Forthwith, I told Kozhevnikov to come to the small border town of Skuliani, where I would give him instructions in person. And then Shipov does something quite unexpected. I would expect them both to run away like mice, right? Yeah. But instead, he tells Kozhevnikov to follow Pavlov. So, so Pavlov is following Kozhevnikov, and Kozhevnikov is following Pavlov now. So you get this kind of Pink Panther moment that's wow. like... Yeah. <laughs> and... So he was to inform me about all of this regularly and without delay. I gave Kozhevnikov 25 shervansi, which are gold coins, worth 3, 5, or 10 rubles. And he left for Odessa. So he's like, he's got counter espionage going on now, right? So he's a clever guy. Next, he hears from his informant, Kozhevnikov, that Pavlov has left Odessa, headed for Kishinev, which is in the direction of Shipov. And only about 90 miles or 150 kilometers short of where he actually is in Yash. So you know, the surf hunter is closing in. Yeah. And then finally, 
the dread moment comes. <laughs> So Dubrovin, the Skopets, bursts into Shipov's room, saying he just saw Pavlov headed this direction. Immediately, Shipov leaps into high gear, and he barks to his wife to go with their son off to a different Skopets home, and then he tells Dubrovin to say that Shipov left for Constantinople, and here's 4,000 rubles that I left with you for safekeeping, you know, setting up the yeah. story. And then Shipov himself climbs up to Dubrovin's hayloft and peers out through a crack in the wall. So now we're back to the opening scene. Right? Yeah. Shipov stares anxiously out through the crack in the wall, and we see Pavlov Trudgian with his massive furry hat sniff around, almost like he can sense his presence. But, <laughs> but Shipov... Something but, I haven't since. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Shipov eludes capture for the time being, and Pavlov stomps off in frustration. Man. I, I don't think I've ever been in a situation as nerve-wracking as that must have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Shipoff and his wife manage to slip away. And next they, they get a new phony passport uh, posing as Prussians this time. And then you get this kind of like scene with like the map of Europe and the dotted lines of all the places that they go to, <laughs> yeah. you know. And they travel around Europe lying low for a while, but ever pursued... They hear Pavlov is looking for them in Bucharest, and then they go to the Crimea, but they nearly run smack into Pavlov and narrowly escape with their necks again. Finally, in 1835, Shipov seems to have shaken Pavlov off the trail for a while because he gets no wind of him for yeah. uh, a considerable time. Um, and then he goes to do some trading in the Caucasus, a border region nominally under the control of Russia at this time, but very much fraught with rebels and bandits. So yeah. it's, My how things have changed. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the Caucasus, he falls in with a certain Cossack. And by the way, listeners, you can see our episode on the Cossacks for all the crazy wild westiness of you know the Cossacks yeah. and, and, and the Caucasus at this time. So this Cossack that he falls in with is named Sukorakov, and he hires Shipov as a commission agent in the emerging oil industry. Because, hmm. oh yeah, it's getting to be about that time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is, like, a pretty rough-and-tumble place, like I said. It's like the Wild West, and they actually called it the Wild Step. Yeah. For example, one of his business associates at this time goes off on an errand to buy some flour and just never comes back. <laughs> right. <laughs> apparently, he was taken captive by a, uh, in a raid by Circassians, which is another of the ethnic groups of that region. Yeah. So that's basically the kind of place this is. It's very Wild Westy. So next, this Sukorakov, the Cossack, sends ship off to a postal auction where the, all the postal stations in the region are being auctioned off to the highest bidder, which hmm. would be a, quite a lucrative deal. So he, he's sent off to this auction, but he doesn't actually want ship off to win the auction. He is supposed to <laughs> pose as a bidder. But his real mission is to see if he can fleece some money out of the other bidders at the auction. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, it's, it's just it's just it's just classic running the scam, man. Running the, just... exactly, exactly. It's running the scam. So he does manage to charm his way into some potentially sweet deals, but in true Han Solo style, his charm runs out, and he has to t hightail it out of there, basically. 
<laughs> they caught um, him with a Savak card up his sleeve. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and this failure to complete his mission really sticks in the craw of Sukorikov, the Cossack. And he doesn't say anything, he just plays it cool. But secretly, he begins to plot against Shipoff. Hmm. And now here's the thing. At this time, Shipoff is having all of his letters being sent care of Sikorikov, this Cossack, right? And soon one comes from Kozhevnikov, his spy back in Odessa, who says Pavlev is back and in Odessa again. And Sikorikov gets this, he intercepts the letter, and to get his revenge against Shipoff for failing him in his mission, um, he turns it over to the authorities. And now at this point, Shipoff is well and truly fucked. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he finds his ass in prison. He's just basically a mouse caught in a cage. And yeah. all he can do now is basically wait for the in inevitable, which comes in short order. So this is 1837 now. Shipoff is sitting in the cold and drafty cell of a stockade in Stavropol uh, with a sign around his neck that says, For vagrancy. Why? I can't, I don't know. I can't figure it out, but it's just yeah. like, why not? When who strolls in to see him but. Oh, no. <laughs> the man in the massive furry hat, his surf hunter, Pavlov. Now, I picture an exchange of sort of like wordless glances, right, as the yeah. two acknowledge the turn of fortune that has led them <laughs> to this point. And Pavlov's bushy beard curls up as he smiles somewhere beneath that hat. But Shipoff remains defiant. And Shipoff is once again characteristically terse in his description of this event. And he writes, My meeting with him, meaning Pavlov, was brief but extremely taxing and unpleasant for me. Pavlov <laughs> told me, that if I returned home to Vyaznaya, the landlord would forgive me. So, hmm. basically, this is the, like, join me, Luke. You right. don't know the power <laughs> of the dark side kind of moment, you know, right? <laughs> and so Shipov says, I replied that since the whole affair had already reached the courts, let the courts settle our dispute. I would rather live in Siberia. So, so basically he's like, fuck you and, right. and the transport yeah. you came in on, you know. So from there, Shipoff gets transferred to a prison back closer to his home estate of Yesnaya. And eventually in 1841, he is reinstalled as a serf under his old landlord, Saltikov. So he's totally yeah. back to square one after all oh. that. And it's like, well, <laughs> shit. <laughs> so this is rock bottom like worse than prison for him right he's yeah. a bound surf again forced to live in bondage it's the equivalent of being encased in carbonite yeah, <laughs> yeah. and apparently he feels that he has he, he's got nothing left to lose so much so that he just becomes really brazen and yeah. he walks right up to one of pavlov's former helpers who had helped hunt him and says once you and Pavlov dearly wished to look upon a certain ship off. Now, if you wish, you can see him for free without even looking for him. I am ship off. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, what, what the hell else are they going to do to me? Like, I'm, right. you know, what yeah. more can you take from me? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, worse still, after everything that happened, Shipoff can no longer do his trading, his, his bread and butter, because no one's willing to give him any credit anymore. And he yeah. writes, 
they were so frightened of me, I might have been a bear. Hmm. So he is screwed. During this time, he tries to marry off his daughter, who is now grown up by this point, to some wealthy families. But the landlord, Saltykov, refuses because they could do that. <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> they that, could that, just deny your control. Over. Yes, they could just yeah. be like, "Nope, you're not getting married," or at least not to this guy. Yeah, uh, she has to settle for marrying a lowly bootmaker, which is mm. quite an insult. He tries to get some of his old possessions back from before he ran away, and even swallows his pride enough that he asks his old nemesis Tarkov for help in getting his possessions back. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like, I got no pride left. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but Tarkov is like, no, you, know, you ain't getting shit back. So, yeah. However, in this darkest of hours, as he's pursuing his case to try to find some legal way to get his stuff back, he discovers a certain statute in the Code of Laws, and it's like a ray of light out of the heavens. <laughs> So he's paging through this code of laws, this enormous tome, right? Trying to work his way through the legalese in the Cyrillic, which <laughs> I'm sure is fine for him. But for me, it makes it even more, you know, <laughs> even more impenetrable. <laughs> exactly. When the book falls upon a certain page that draws his eye and he finds a statute that says, if a serf is captured by mountain plunderers and escapes... He shall be freed along with his whole family. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. So I, I would now be sort of thinking like, well, what counts as a mountain plunderer? Ex yeah. Yeah, ex exactly. It, now, he, he's got to be recalling now his friend back in the Caucasus that we mentioned who went out for flour and never came back. You yeah. Know? So, this, this, you know, this is real deal, right? Also, um, in his childhood... He was constantly hearing stories of his father's men who were attacked by bandits along the trade routes. And in a previous episode of this series, we actually heard such a story from his autobiography. It was at the end of our Cossacks episode, the Cossack Melnikov, who had this like magic charm that protected him against bullets. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it, it's a good way to get yourself killed getting captured by bandits. But nevertheless, yeah. the gears start turning in his head. And like I said, this guy's got like a one-track mind. So he's like captured you say <laughs> <laughs> okay so now we go to the final part of our story this is where ship off really gets ballsy <laughs> if yeah. he wasn't if he wasn't cocky enough <laughs> so he applies for a passport to travel and for some reason I cannot figure out, they grant it to him. I suppose because he's a traitor and they want him to at least, you know, make some money that they can then exact they from can, him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They can then they can then shear this sheep and, and exactly. take that money. Yeah. yeah. So they they let him travel again and he's granted a six month passport to travel and trade. And he ends up following a Russian army battalion to the Caucasus region again. Which, you know, from his previous experience, seems like a, a good place to get yourself captured. <laughs> right. And he gets work as a sutler, supplying the soldiers with provisions. Then we get this characterizing moment that really brings out his, you know, Han Solo side, where he sticks around long enough 
that his six-month passport is about to expire. But of course, he doesn't want to go home, and so he's got to find some way to extend it. So it's yeah. like, what's a serf to do, right? But he decides to write back home to his estate manager, saying, Traveling through Ekaterinodar, I saw four peasants in flight from Vyaznaya, all of whom are fit for military service. I want to catch these peasants and hand them over to the local police, who will then dispatch them back to Vyaznaya. However, I am unable to do anything without your official warrant. I am therefore asking you if you might forward me such a warrant together with a new passport. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. All he needs is the passport, but that's the cover story that he comes up with. So it's like, I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> right? So he's pulling the, the con job again, right? Yeah, yeah. And the estate manager falls for it. He gets his passport extension. So now he's set. And now he's like, okay, now, phase two, get myself captured. (laughs) (laughs) So one evening, the sutler business is short on butter for the soldiers. And he has to go out to an aul, which is a kind of mountain village in the Caucasus region, to obtain some butter from a Tatar. And he's stopped by an NCO, you know, a non-commissioned officer, who's like, you know, this is like the, the there's Tuscan Raiders in these parts kind of <laughs> warning. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, it's too dangerous. <laughs> and the NCO says, it's dangerous walking around at this time. The Chechens could snap you up anywhere. Those damned savages are cunning. They know you've usually got money on you. They'll catch you, send you off into the mountains, and from there to the next world. And Shipoff is like, oh, Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, thanks for the warning. <laughs> Heaven hopefully... forfend such a thing would happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully nothing will happen. Oh, yeah, well, okay, thank you. So um, he finds the Tatar and arranges for the delivery of the butter the next morning. And then he's on his way back home. And then he writes, When I left for home, it was so dark, you may as well have plucked out my eyes. As I was leaving the gates of the Aul, the watchman hailed me with a, Who goes there? A sutler, I replied. From the gates I descended down a hill. On my left was a cliff. On the right, a steep bank down to the Akhtash, which is a nearby river. I walked close to the cliff's very edge, exactly halfway between the Aul and a smaller community on its outskirts. I was seized by some people who began dragging me downhill to the river. I ended up rolling down the bank with them in the snow and would have cried out to the guard, but the bandits bared their daggers and drew them up to my chest. It's like, <laughs> and I don't know why he bothers to write that in to us, the reader. I, well, I right. would have cried out, tried to escape, <laughs> but I was stuck. What was like, what but was then, I going to do? <laughs> but then that would have ruined the scam. <laughs> I mean, they had daggers. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he says, for a moment, I lost consciousness. The bandits then put some sort of hood on my head and tied it so that I couldn't see a thing. Then they bound my head with a belt and led me onward. Now, of course, this would scare the shit out of most people, but Shipov had to be like, oh, for joy. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought this beautiful day would come, you know. (laughs) So bound and hooded, he's led away over a river and on to who knows where, right? And he writes, somewhere in the distance, I heard the barking of a dog. At this sound, my companions began speaking Chechen, a language I barely understood. As we continued through the snow for about another four versts, which I looked up is equal to about two and a half miles or four kilometers, 
Okay. Uh, the barking became more and more audible. We waded through another river, though I supposed that it was the Akhtash yet again. We seemed to climb upward for a while, then stopped when the bandits began calling someone. A response was heard from somewhere up high, and something was thrown down from above. I was bound with a rope around my midsection, my hmm. hands were untied, and I was told in Kumik, which is the language of another ethnic group around that region, I was told in Kumik, Usta Arkan, or hold on to the rope, which I did. Apparently he speaks Kumik. I don't know. Yeah. Um, after being pulled up about three sajans, or about nine feet or six meters, that seems like that doesn't, must have been nine feet, three meters. I think I got my math wrong. Yeah. I was grabbed by two men who then led me along for another 15 minutes or more. Finally, they stopped, tied my hands behind my back, pushed me into some sort of storeroom, slammed the door shut, and put a chain on it. <laughs> so, he just sits down to a nice little birthday party all by himself there, right? <laughs> right? The cell is drafty and wet, and the shackles numb his hands, but he may as well have just checked into the Hilton, basically, because his plan has worked. He got himself captured. Part one of the plan, check, you know? Right. So, now he's like, all I have to do now is escape. Let's just get out. <laughs> right. Which, if you ever played Dungeons & Dragons before, it's not really that hard. Come on. Right. Know. You know, you just, you fake an illness and, you know. <laughs> all right. So he says, then someone led me to another place and removed the hood. I saw before me the interior of a large saklia, which is a Caucasus mountain hut, mm -hmm. illuminated by some heated tallow set upon a stool. In front of me stood a kumik, tall, well-built, broad-shouldered, whom I had never seen before. And he asked me, Tanisman Maneki? Do you know me? And... Of course, my pronunciation is going to be not even close. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> anyway, it's cool that, that he actually gives us the actual kumik of it. So. Yeah, yeah. Belmania. No, I don't, I replied, indicating a stool. The kumik told me, Ultar, sit down. And I did as he said. The kumik drew a knife from his pocket and began sharpening it against a whetstone. <laughs> and, and seeing this, he's like, "Ooh, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whoops!" That's never—it's never a good sign when, uh, yeah. when uh, you know, you have a, a mountain bandit is sharpening his dagger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not how I pictured it happening. <laughs> anyway, so this might not, not have been such a great idea after all, because you know, yeah. shit's getting real. But okay, so he says, "On seeing this, my hair stood on end and my heart beat so hard that I'm sure the kumik could hear it." In my thoughts, I said farewell to all my family and the world under the assumption that the last minutes of my life had arrived. The kumik finished sharpening the blade, came over to me, pulled my head toward him and said, Kokma, which means, don't be frightened. Hmm. Then the kumik starts shaving his head. He shaves his hair and beard, which like I said is a grave humiliation to a Russian yeah peasant but Shifop is like because you know <laughs> he thought he was going to lose his neck yes <laughs> then the kumik puts a hat on him and then the hood goes on again and his vision is obscured hmm. the next time the hood comes off it is next evening his captors gruffly ask if he has any money on him and search his person but find nothing they do find however his notebook and pen 
so they command him to write a note. Shipoff says, what should I write? And they say to write a ransom note demanding 100 silver rubles. <laughs> so Shipoff writes to his business partner, I'm a captive, but I don't know where. They're asking 300 rubles for my redemption. <laughs> God, I really, I really like the cut of this guy's jib. <laughs> I know, right? He marks up his own ransom. <laughs> They're asking 300 rubles for my redemption. For God's sake, please help unhappy end ship off. So, yeah. <laughs> so the note is sent out, and then there's a long wait for a reply. During this time, Shipoff gets to know his captors a little bit, and we actually get to see a little bit of what they and their lifestyle are like. You know, mm -hmm. so a little bit of a National Geographic moment of the uh, Caucasus Mountains region here. And I, I imagine honestly, like that's that's especially valuable, I think, for any historians. You know, oh yeah. Because I mean, beyond serfdom, I'm I'm certain we don't have very many first person accounts from you know bandits in a sort of satellite region of Russia. Like that's you know. I imagine there can't be many. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that. Yeah. So he meets a Kumik who speaks decent Russian by the name of Mustafa. And this Mustafa is only with the bandits because of a trade deal that went bad. And he basically had to flee and join the bandits for protection while his case makes his way through the courts. So he doesn't really want to be there any more than Shipoff does, and maybe even less. So it's kind of like, you know, a fellow you know, soul in distress. And he tells yeah, yeah. Shipoff straight up, hey, I know you probably want to escape, but you won't be able to do so anytime soon. And in fact, you'll probably be turned over to the boss man, Shamil, um, who is uh, like the, the big leader of the uh, resistance uh, in that region. Kind of like the um, Castro of, of that region, I guess. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this Mustafa also seems to be fond of cards, and invites Shipoff to play with him and some other um, Circassians. And the game is called Fools, and the object is to get rid of all your cards, and the fool is the last person left after everyone else has run out of cards. Yeah. So Shipoff... So it's like, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, Uno, almost. Or sort of yeah, reverse yeah. Uno. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, right? Okay. So Shipoff writes, The Circassians played badly but I played the fool deliberately. Mm -hmm. They were pleased with my ineptitude and laughed at me, <laughs> saying, This soldier's a fool. <laughs> 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 so basically, Shipoff totally makes his charisma roll, and yes. <laughs> he, he just charms this Mustafa guy by pretending to lose at cards, and he becomes friendly with him and learns a little bit about the lifestyle of the bandits. And when he asks one night where the other Circassians that he usually plays cards with have gone, Mustafa tells him, they don't know themselves where they are headed. Usually they just ride and wander like hungry wolves along various roads and near Aul's friendly to the Russians. If they meet anybody, they rob him. If they find some cattle, they herd it away. They're fearless, and they live by pillage alone. One other thing, whomever they take captive, they either kill or sell him. So this is another kind of like gulp kind of moment for Shipoff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But pretty much he's got Mustafa wrapped around his little finger at this point. And soon Mustafa agrees to help him escape. 
There's only one problem, and that's that Mustafa's name is soon to be cleared in the courts so that he can return home, and he's not willing to jeopardize that situation until then. So Shipoff just basically has to cool it and be patient for a little while. Meanwhile, the bandits are supposed to turn Shipoff over to this guy, Shamil, the big boss man, but they are delaying in hopes that they will get the ransom for themselves in short order and presumably be able to, you know, keep it. And so, so they're yeah. also delaying handing him over to the boss. Well, as he waits, Shipoff gains the trust of those around him and he's allowed a little bit more freedom. He's allowed to kind of walk around. He get even, you know, sees a little bit of what goes on outside. And he writes, The larks were singing and the eagle owls crying out in a strange sort of voice. Circassian women drove cattle to the watering hole, and some of them carried jugs of water from a nearby channel on their shoulders. Kids came over to me, carrying daggers and small pistols. <laughs> oh. You know, kid, kid stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, Fisher Price, uh, you know, little, little Tykes pistols, you know. <laughs> yes, that actually fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's good old-fashioned fun. So anyway, they sat down next to me and looked at me in a most unfriendly manner. They spoke amongst themselves in Chechen, and I didn't understand them. Then they left, and I was alone. I sat there looking at the ground, and suddenly noticed something shiny, like a little star. It struck me that this must be some kind of metal in mineral form. And I thought, may God enable our Tsar quickly to subjugate Shamal and his plundering peoples, and to conquer this rebellious land where no small amount of wealth and abundance might be found. <laughs> so he's already like, oh, I can't wait to trade in this region. <laughs> right. So, this guy's never not on, basically. So, anyway, like I said before, he does maybe start to show some character growth. Here's mm -hmm. one of those moments. He's playing Fools again, the card game, uh, and a big, fully armed Circassian dude just comes and plops down next to him and just starts, like, glaring, right? And he writes, This Circassian glared at me fiercely, like a beast. It seemed that he wanted to devour me with his darting eyes. His gaze was hardly a surprise to me, however, for only rarely did any of the savages look at me with pity or a smile. And this was understandable. All mountain peoples had lived freely and independently from time immemorial. Only with Russians did they have to struggle so continuously and for so long. During that time, a lot of Russian blood had been spilt, but from among the mountaineers, you might find only one from every ten who hadn't had a grandfather, a father, a son, or some other relative killed by Russians. Hmm. So how could a savage stare at me other than with hate? Yeah, that's... A remarkable kind of uh, insight and reflection there. Yeah. yeah, he he actually starts to put himself in the shoes of you know his the other ethnicities around him a little, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, a little bit. So he might have even possibly had enough feeling feeling for his captors at this point that he might feel a tinge of regret about leaving them. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but nevertheless, you know, one track might escape right. right. So one evening. When everyone is asleep, Shipoff wakes to stoke the fire, and then he notices something opportune. He writes, The old man had forgotten both to lock the door and to block it with the anvil. I decided to run for it. I like that their only like way of keeping him in is to like <laughs> a shitty lock and an anvil on the other right, side. Right, right. Just put it like a doorstop. That's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Quietly, I left the Saklia and headed for the stable, which also turned out to be unlocked. <laughs> and at this point, of course, he could just bolt. But yeah. he's a thinker, so he doesn't. He holds himself back, right? He's got to do this right. And he says, I returned to the Saklia and began to think about carrying away and hiding all of the weapons hanging on the wall. Oh, if, yeah. there's, mm -hmm, if the Circassians wake up after I've left, no problem, I thought, for they'll have no weapons. With that in mind, I'll take two rifles, a pistol, and a dagger with me. I'll saddle up a horse, lead her away 40 sergeants from the owl, break my bonds with the dagger, get on the horse, and ride away. And if I run into any bandits, they'll have three shots to contend with. <laughs> yeah. So... I was just about to get a saddle and some weapons when one of the Circassians turned over, lifted up his head, and looked at me and asked, Nay, Tarasan, what are you sitting up for? Uh, Beksuvuk? That's <laughs> <laughs> very cold, he says. <laughs> uh, shaking as though he had a fever. So, uh, shit, you know. He had, his, he had his plan, but he lost his yeah. opportunity. So now he's got to wait for another day. Just like, crap. Well, soon Mustafa tells him that he is about to be taken to the big boss Shamil in another day or two. Hmm. Mustafa's wife then gives him a pipe and says, Smoke. Smoke to your heart's content. Smoking <laughs> is prohibited around Shamil. <laughs> so, sounds a little bit like a Last Supper type of thing to say a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah. Smoke him while you got him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Godspeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's no guarantee that this Shamil is going to treat him nearly as well as his captors. And for all you know, they, they could just gut him as a, and string him up as a lesson to the other Russians. So yeah. basically, time is running short now for Shipov. He's got to get away and fast. <laughs> So the following day, February 19th, 1845, he meets another of the bandits, a Tatar this time, and mm -hmm. starts laying on the charm. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks with him and basically starts working him. The Tatar boasts that he has the most splendid dog in the camp. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Chipov is like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, that's an amazing dog. Where are you from, by the way? Oh, I know a guy from there and so on. Till through a sort of like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon type of thing, like yeah. they kind of discover that they have a mutual friend, and pretty yeah, soon they're yeah. like they're like telling each other their life stories, and you know they're like totally broing out, and he just falls <laughs> just right into Shipov's palm, basically. Right, right. <laughs> and finally, the Tatar does one of those where he like casts a glance over both shoulders, you know, this is shifty-eyed look, and is like basically like, okay, I'll open your leg irons, and I'll take over two shifts from the watchman. And then sh I'll show you where the road is. But watch out for the dogs. And if anybody catches you, it wasn't me, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. all right. Then he brings him four pieces of iron, one of which fits the lock on his leg fetters perfectly. Not even keys, <laughs> just pieces of iron. So, again, uh, that gives you another indication of their lock technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh. And he says to go up a certain path and then wait for a whistle. That night, Shipoff pretends to be asleep and waits till his guard has dozed off. And then he writes, After a while, as though sleeping, I kicked the old man, but he lay there like a dead man. I got up, crossed myself, opened my fetters with the piece of iron given me by the Tatar, took a small stick with me, and quietly, carefully left the Saklia. 
the dogs didn't smell me. I got out of the Aul and went up the mountain by the path the Tatar had shown me. Near a large Chanar tree I stopped and sat there listening for about ten minutes. Suddenly I heard someone coming toward me along the path until, stopping for a second, he quietly whistled. This was my benefactor, the Tatar, armed in a Circassian fashion. Yeah. We walked along together quickly. I didn't feel my legs beneath me. I floated like a feather in the breeze. (laughs) 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 Uh, So the Tatar leads Shipov past the guard and into the forest and through snow that collapses under their feet. And Shipov has no boots. He's just got these wrappings torn from his ragged Cheviaki that they've got him clothed in. It's a, wow, yeah, yeah. kind of a, a coat, like a really shitty coat. Yeah. Uh, and his feet are getting all soaked and frozen, but he doesn't care. You know, they like they get past the sentinels at the at the gatehouse, and then the Tatar finally says, "Okay, I could go no further." Right, and and he wishes him well, and and then like he's like, "Okay, you're on your own from here." And Shipov writes, "After he left, I went downhill like an arrow." I ran to the Ereksu, crossed it, and went on, again downhill. On both sides were bushes and small stone cliffs. Suddenly it seemed that people were running after me. I stopped for a minute, listened, and then ran further. The road began to narrow. My feet began to get all gummed up in these cheviaki filled with snow. Sweat fell from me like hail, and I had a terrible thirst that I quenched with snow grabbed in handfuls along the way. I ran this way for about 20 versts, which is about 13 miles, yeah. 21 kilometers, until I had to sit down in the snow from exhaustion. Steam was rising from me as it does from a horse after a long <laughs> ride in cold winter. I suddenly heard someone going along the path, and my wet hair stood on end. The thought flashed through my mind, I won't be able to avoid death this time. <laughs> I, be- <laughs> I began peering ahead where I could clearly hear some kind of rustling and suddenly saw a huge wild hog. (laughs) What was I to do? When the hog drew another two sajans nearer, I cried out with all my might. The hog dashed off the path to one side and, after doing a few jumps, got stuck in the snow (laughs) and crawled away. (laughs) Poor pig! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the... It was a random encounter, and, and the creature, you know, made, fumbled its role, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a critical failure. And, yeah, yeah, critical failure, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I quietly went along the path, never taking my eyes off that wild animal. After another ten sessions or so, I took off running, as they say, as fast as my legs would carry me. I don't remember how long I was running. I even forgot about the Circassians. I stopped and turned around. Is the hog running after me? No, I realized, and ran on at a gallop. My wet coat started to get heavy, and I would soon have to throw it away. Snow was continually flying into my mouth, like water from a bathhouse stove. (laughs) And he continues on like this, until sunset, and then on through the night. And morning dawned again. It occurred to me then that the plunderers might catch sight of me from somewhere far away, and that it would be impossible for me to conceal myself from them. I ran with all my remaining strength, weeping from the wind hitting me in the face, but unmindful of it. Suddenly, in the distance, on my right, I saw the tower of Fort Vyesnyapnaya, and on the other side, Andrivsky Aul. Soon I had passed through the forest entirely and ran onto the main road, where I could see the sentry standing on the fortress wall. I ran up to the outermost gates and collapsed in a dead 
faint. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, Shipov's freedom is secured. It's guaranteed, yeah. Yeah. Wow. He was both captured and escaped, meaning that the law is now obligated to free him and his whole family. And after a lengthy legal process, he gains his manumission. Fantastic. So, now we go to the closing montage of our movie, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> so we just get a series of scenes showing like what happens to all like the some of the characters, you know, from the story, yeah. right? So first of all, we see Shipoff receiving his papers, which is, you know, like the scene where Leia places the medals around the the, the neck of Luke and Han, <laughs> right. you know? So exactly. Like... <laughs> and he writes of this, the desk chief brought out my certificate of manumission. I signed my name in the record book for outgoing paper and bowed deeply. I had nothing else with which to thank him. Next, we see his wife also gaining her freedom. And he writes, as she later told me, they tried to detain her and keep her down in Vyasnaya, but the local officials were powerless against the law and against justice. My wife and children came to me in Kherson, and we began to live a new life. Now, as for those officials, we see the landlord, Baron Saltykov, <laughs> as well as one of his estate managers, bowing before the altar in an Orthodox church. And he writes, My main persecutors, the landlord and estate manager Ragazin, had right around this time turned their sinful souls over to God. Mm-hmm. I... <laughs> uh, well, all right. <laughs> I... I... I don't know. From his perspective, maybe that makes sense. I'm sure a noble thought that they were just doing God's justice when they were exploiting their serfs. But anyway, I was I was gonna say like if yeah. you have like a you know this the social system where at the top of the pyramid is an autarch who yeah. believes himself to have been specifically chosen by God to enforce these laws. Yeah. Then, no. I. You yeah. Know. Yeah. But but so uh, I mean maybe yeah. I, I guess maybe if you if you sort of have your come to Jesus moment uh, to, to use some some southern United <laughs> States Protestant parlance exactly. Um, but uh, I, maybe that might make you a kinder landlord, perhaps, or something perhaps. like that. Maybe, maybe that's the turn. Yeah. Perhaps. As for Shipoff's arch nemesis, we see nothing but a gravestone. Tarkov had died by this time, is all that <laughs> Shipoff writes. And we were not told how he died. I am going to feel free to imagine that he was eaten by a sarlacc. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you could feel free to fill in the details as you will. Yeah. Finally, we end our movie with a stinger scene at the end, after the credits have finished rolling and everything, you know, just for the diehard fans that are still in the theater, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So we see Shipoff waiting on a count in the army who had been instrumental in getting his story to the right people so he could be freed. Mm -hmm. And he's asked to bring some porter. And the count says, hey, that's the prisoner of the mountains. How much does a bottle of porter cost, he asks. And Shipoff is like, two rubles. And the Count does this, like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Two rubles? (laughs) And then Chipoff writes, well, I enumerated all the expenses that a trader has to pay for a single bottle of porter. (laughs) 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 The Count shook his head and said, here you go. That's for 10 bottles, 20 rubles. I bowed and went back to the carts. (laughs) 
<laughs> Lord help me, I'm back on my yeah. bullshit. Right. <laughs> oh, that's, and that's so I, phenomenal. So I, yeah, I imagine Shipoff, you know, like turning to the camera, winking, and we just get the freeze frame, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then the wow. fade to black. Yeah. Yeah. What a what a remarkable document. What a what a fantastic <laughs> story. That's I know, right? Marvelous. Yeah. 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 And there's just a like you said, an amazing amount of like uh information about the times. Right. And yeah, and especially so with like uh you know, there's there's always I think a perennial danger is the implicit bias of so many sources that we have are necessarily from elites in society. Right. And so when you yes. have something that's not only from someone on a lower rung, like a surf, a prosperous surf, but still a surf, but also who is having to hide out with the criminal underground and, <laughs> yeah. and Jews and persecuted heretics. And yes. so you and get a window into all these people who would have been at best ignored and at worst vilified and slandered by more or less your official sources. Right. Uh, what a, what a, what a tremendous document. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that was a fun read. It's a fun. Yeah, read. yeah, and and so. and you're absolutely right that uh, shades of Star Wars all over that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I didn't wrangle that in at all. I just gonna completely exonerate myself, like it was all there in the text. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well that's it for our episode today. Um, uh, that's it for our series on Russian serfdom as well, um, which is officially now our longest series yet with eight episodes so wow yeah um yep <laughs> you gotta, uh, gotta stretch those wings man yeah, stre- yeah we're yeah. stretching them we're, we're stretching them like freedom <laughs> just that's like... right <laughs> um thanks for being on the show dan oh of course i, I've, I was uh i'm very happy to do it this was this was a blast thank you so much it was it was a real treat for me. It was it's kind of like <laughs> meeting one of my my podcasting idols. Oh no! <laughs> I assure you, as, as if you haven't picked up by uh, by now, I'm just I'm just some schmuck. Don't worry about it. But well, I'm, but I'm very happy to be on there. Meeting one of my idol schmucks. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <Yes. laughs> uh, just a little bit about Daniel. Uh, we've talked up the lesser Bonapartes many times before in this show, and if you still haven't checked them out. Uh, what's wrong with you basically so um go do it right now <laughs> daniel is no longer a permanent co-host on lesser bonapartes but he's back now and then as a guest meanwhile he is also on a new show called the cannonball c-a-n-o-n which explores all the works of the western literary canon one at a time so check that out too uh anything else you want the listeners to know daniel no, honestly, that, that that about covers my my uh, my podcasting bona fides. So that's uh, I guess I should say to to allay any fears out there. I, I I like to take the time to let everyone know and that there has never been any kind of like beef between myself and Glenn. It was purely uh, a, a kind of like amicable uh, leaving of the show because well, I, I have to say this because like apparently there's like rumor mongers around that there's some deep dark secret at work or like I was forced out or something it's, it's never been never never been like that. I just want to you know I, I just like to to quash every rumor possible um, but now, why am I taking up time on your podcast to <laughs> quash bizarre internet rumors it's okay I you can make your stranded. fake news accusations <laughs> yeah ex- exactly it's fake news folks fake news okay all right by the way uh you can also see the portrait that i drew of daniel and his Mm. lesser bonaparte's counterpart glenn drawn as 70s era rockers with stasia of hawkwind and also check out the portrait i just did of david and henry dutton as first samurai in space (laughs) 
<laughs> they asked for either early space exploration or samurai stuff, so I combined them. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, so you can check that out on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. And definitely check them out on YouTube. It's 8-Bit Cinema. It's awesome. Check it out. And you too can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing by supporting us on Patreon. Anyway, this autobiography, uh, Shipoffs, can be found in McKay's Four Russian Surf Narratives, if you want the English version. It's a remarkable book with a lot of first-hand details on 19th century Russian culture. In fact, most of the details of the wedding negotiation role-playing game scene that we did in episode three came from this autobiography. Anyway, um, just for the listeners, do you have any mm -hmm. projects that you'd like to plug or anything else that you want them to know? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess just really the only project I have going right now is the Cannonball, which we mentioned. But uh, just to sort of reiterate there, it's uh, myself and uh, a real legitimate college professor, uh, Claude, the uh, the co-host of the show, mm -hmm. um, going through just sort of using as a uh, framework Harold Bloom's The Western Canon. But of course, anyone with familiarity with you know literary criticism knows that Harold Bloom himself is extremely problematic and the, even the idea <laughs> even the idea of canonicity is something that we kind of wrestle with as well so it's um we're basically basically using it as like a useful framework to go back and read all those quote-unquote great books that uh that Claude has read that I have never gotten around to <laughs> so I yeah. can sort of respond to as a as an interested amateur um but it's, it's yeah it's, it's it's terrifically fun so far it's it's been a really great project uh but uh, yeah please please check it out we're available wherever uh you get your podcasts yeah it's it's been an interesting flashback slash nightmare back to my english major days <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no no actually, we're, I, we're, we're hoping to make it a little more fun uh, to have a little more uh, freewheeling sort of yeah, conversation about fun. these works yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh okay also a big thank you to uh david and henry dutton of 8-Bit Cinema, who contributed the soundtrack. Go to YouTube, check them out. They are awesome. We will be back next week with something different. I'm thinking we might do a month of short, like, public domain theater 3,000 pieces or something, which we haven't done for a while, before diving into our next big series. And that is basically called Rachel and Brandon Just Bought a House and Need Some Time Off to Get Some Shit Done, because <laughs> I can do those kind of episodes faster. Um, but don't worry, the epic series will return. And our next epic series will be, drumroll please, on cuneiform. I'm there, dude. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the world's oldest known culture of writing, the ancient Sumerians, and, you know, cuneiform. So that's going to be loads of fun. Do not miss it. All right. Uh, finally, everybody, if you like what we're doing <laughs> on the show, support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. You can get great perks like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. You, too, could be a 70s rocker just like Dan. <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to be, just support the show and we'll make you look awesome. All right, everybody. See you next week. I'm E.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.